going on in the middle of this that we are all supporting as well. You know, the fight for racial, racial justice, you know, the fight for uh, equality for all. So somehow we're going to do it all that way. Do, and and let's, let's have our response reflect the change in our thinking so that okay. we help all the people. There we go. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Tammy, our, 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 our West Coast put, uh, uh, on the spot, put, uh, reporter, public affairs, parting words from the wonderful Tammy. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, everyone stay safe. You stay safe. Uh, Linda, great to hear your voice on the airwaves again. Um, and mm-hmm. I'll be back on the cable airwaves tomorrow with Althea Billings for The Gap, where we mind and bridge and all those things. You can always go to kboo.fm for more information about this show and all of our other KBU shows, as well as uh, to donate if you want to support this kind of programming. kboo.fm, go to the donate button. Thank you all so much. And now is the best time that's to donate. Right, that's right. We gonna. I got more to say, but we gonna get out of here because uh, Teresa Mitchell's coming up with the news. You're not supposed to know. Michael, great job. We working you today, brother. <laughs> we'll be back you know, next Thank week. Thank you, Michael. All right. Take care, y'all. Thank you. Thank you for having me on Reggae. I mean, <laughs> Freeman X. Thank you for having me on. I Teresa will be off this week for Press Watch, but we'll be back in a few short weeks. So for here now, please enjoy our regular uh, schedule programming, and we'll be continuing to bring regular schedule programming throughout the day. Sorry about that. Once again, Teresa will be off for the rest of the uh, week and also for a few weeks here um, for Press Watch. But please continue to um, listen to our regular schedule programming right here on KBU. And we thank you for being, as always, a loyal listener. And as always, please stay safe out there. You're listening to KBOO 90.7 FM. Donate to KBU. Support KBU. Give to KBU now. Help KBU reach our fall fundraising goal of $80,000. Got some extra funds you can donate right now? Then go to KBU.fm today and click on the donate button. Join the thousands of KBU members who believe in volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio today. I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. I honestly don't want to be working right now because I have a 14-year-old who has a compromised immune system. Not everyone's been able to stay home during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many people considered essential are still going to work even if they don't want to. There's nothing that I would love more than to be able to stay home and take care of my daughters, but that's just not an option. We take a look at some of these workers, what we call gig workers or drivers for app companies, and how they're doing economically and physically. One of the things that is really obvious in in both studies that we've done is that these are people who are really living on the edge, sort of paycheck to paycheck. We also talk about driver organizing as gig workers try to access sick pay, unemployment, and personal protective equipment. So today we're talking about the effect of COVID-19 on a particular type of essential worker, what we call gig workers. These are people who work for platform-based companies like Uber and Lyft or DoorDash or Instacart. That's Chris Benner. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sociology at UC Santa Cruz. And I also direct a research center called the Institute for Social Transformation. And Chris just published a study. When the coronavirus crisis hit, We had to put a halt on the survey we were running at that time and really put out a more immediate survey that's trying to understand how the crisis is impacting this workforce of what are often referred to as gig workers. We wanted to understand whether or not drivers were able to access protective equipment and unemployment 
and other kinds of benefits because we wanted to know if they were safe. And that's important because as, quote, essential workers were dependent on their help during quarantine. I have spoken to many people who use Instacart, who ask me to leave the groceries outside, who tell me that their four-year-old has severe asthma, who tell me that their young child just went through a surgery. So I do believe that we are in every way, shape, or form essential. There are people that absolutely cannot go get their groceries. And that's George Gonzalez. At the moment, I am an Instacart shopper, so that makes me a gig worker. And I was formerly doing Uber. I still do a little bit of Uber Eats on the side. We met with George, virtually, of course, to talk about his experiences as a delivery driver. And together, Chris's study and George's personal story tell us that the situation for gig workers during COVID-19 is, well, kind of dangerous for a lot of reasons. Let's start with the study. So, Chris, tell me about how you um, gathered information. Was it through known drivers groups or online? We put out a survey and we're uh, reaching out through networks of community organizations and labor organizations, as well as closed online Facebook groups. We actually tried at one point to do a sort of open social media-based recruiting strategy and that survey got hijacked. So we had to sort of work through known networks of drivers. Wait, Chris, what do you mean it got hijacked? Well, two things happened. Uh, You know, one is someone put in place a bot or algorithm-based process for responding to the survey. So it was just clear that we had a bunch of bad surveys. They were all identical and put in place. So that was the first time. The second time we actually discovered, because someone let us know, that someone was paying people to fill out the survey and giving them email addresses to fill them out and actually giving very high ratings to the platform company. So we don't know who was behind that, but it was clearly sort of some suspicious responses. Okay, can you tell me about the demographics you've discovered? Who's working for these apps? It's a predominantly male workforce. In our survey, it's about 83% were, were men. A high level of immigrants in the survey, about 50% are immigrants. We weren't asking about documentation status, but we can expect that a significant portion of those are undocumented immigrants. Almost 70% were people of color, and over 30% are people with a college degree. It means that 69% have no college degree. But demographic data tells us that a lot of app drivers need these jobs and aren't able to just stay home and not work even in the middle of a pandemic. In fact, tracking studies have shown that the wealthy have been able to limit their movement during the shelter-in-place order far more than the poor. Here's George again. Savings are pretty much impossible doing um, Uber and and Lyft just because car repairs are always going to be a thing. You know, it's part of what we signed up for, I suppose, as an independent contractor. As far as rent, we're still paying rent here. I pay $1,400 a month in Sacramento. I honestly don't want to be working right now because I have a 14-year-old who has a compromised immune system. So there's nothing that I would love more than to be able to stay home and take care of my daughters, um, focus on helping them with their homework so that I could quarantine, especially for my 14-year-old's safety. But that's just not an option. And in fact, he now has to work more than ever because on average, gig worker salaries are tanking. Most people were losing significant income from before the crisis back in February. And we had some uh, measures that more than half of respondents had actually lost between 75% and 100% of their weekly earnings on the platform companies since February. And the other things that's happened is that with the rapid increase in unemployment, there's a large number of people who've moved in to try and to do that kind of work, because at least there's some work there. And so you have essentially a flooded labor market, which means that it's very hard to get enough hours. One of the things that is really obvious in in both studies that we've done is that these are people who are really living on the edge, sort of paycheck to paycheck. We have a question in the survey that asks people, you know, whether they have enough resources to handle an emergency expense of only $400. And only 30% roughly of people would be able to pay off immediately a $400 emergency expense. So clearly just one paycheck away from 
not being able to pay basic bills, utilities and, and rent, et cetera. It's very exhausting. We're kind of at the mercy of the people that we're kind of working for. A lot of times we work long hours and we're not getting tipped very well. And that ends up putting us in circumstances where we're making well below minimum wage. I have three daughters. I have a 14-year-old, I have a six-year-old, and I have a four-year-old. Kids are very expensive. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's even harder right now because I have to work more hours to make less and my kids are not able to go to school right now. So just finding the time to help them with their homework, having to pay for more food, all of this is going down at a time where I'm making less than I've ever made, I think. <laughs> I have no money. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a very difficult circumstance. Going to food banks is something that I never really uh, foresaw in my future, and you know, there's no shame in it, but it's definitely something that my family has counted on. There's a lot of things right now that are not getting paid. <laughs> But it's not just the fact that gig workers aren't earning enough that's making their lives difficult at the moment. They also don't have benefits. Benefits which on paper exist, but in actuality are extremely difficult to access. Large portion of people have no health insurance either, uh, about 17% in the most recent survey. And another 32% are, are only getting health insurance through some kind of subsidized uh, system through Medi-Cal or Covered California. So even before the coronavirus hit, they're clearly vulnerable. And in general, uh, independent contractors are not eligible for unemployment insurance. Now, with the passage of the Federal CARES Act, uh, independent contractors became eligible for unemployment insurance. But in our survey, we still found quite a number of people who were having, who had stopped working and were having a hard time getting unemployment insurance. And you know what we've seen is that you know nationally over the last five weeks, uh, more than 26 million people have filed for unemployment insurance. It's a completely unprecedented scale of jump in that, and, and many of the you know online application systems have been completely overwhelmed. And if they're working and have some income, well, then they're not eligible for unemployment insurance. So they're really in this tricky in-between space that makes them very vulnerable in the current context. Filing for unemployment seems like a, a heavy tackle. It's taking a lot of people a long time to get their income. I know that numbers are not guaranteed. And furthermore, there's a long wait to get it. Uber is just one of those difficult things that make it very hard when applying for any kind of, um, any kind of help because we are independent contractors. So maybe that's lack of knowledge and I have to take accountability for that. But I also don't feel as though these platforms make it easier on us. I don't feel like they do a good job trying to navigate us toward these healthcare options. For George, it's too much of a gamble to try and wait for unemployment or other benefits to kick in. He'd rather work now while he's still able to, even if it's extremely dangerous. I don't want to get backed up. I don't want to start looking for some kind of temporary forgiveness. And then as soon as everything goes back to normal, I have to meet that kind of back payment and continue to make my, my regular payments. And as it is, it's very scary because once everybody is released back out into the public, who's to say whether or not people are going to want to take Uber? One of the questions we had going into our interviews was how much responsibility the app companies are taking for their workers. And that was also a big question for Chris in his study. Part of what we were asking about in this survey is what kind of protections were they getting from the platform companies they're working for to make sure they're being safe and healthy and that they're making sure the customers are being safe and healthy. And I have to say that was one of the most disturbing parts of that is, you know, consistently people were reporting getting very little support from the platform companies themselves. Uh, they were taking some more precautions on their own initiatives around wearing gloves or using hand sanitizer, wearing masks. George, have you contacted the app companies for help with things like masks and gloves? Yes. Yes, I have reached out to Lyft, I have reached out to Uber, and I have reached out to Instacart. In all three circumstances, it's become pretty much impossible. Instacart last week finally allowed me to request an order, and that was last Tuesday, and as of today, I still don't have it. So last Friday in Oakland, they were distributing hand sanitizer and masks. I'm in Sacramento right now because there's no work for me in, in the Bay Area, and I couldn't drive an hour and 30 minutes just to go get hand sanitizer, so I had to pass up on that. So 
I called and I stayed on the phone for about two hours. I talked to three different people and finally they said, there's nothing we can do regarding getting you a mask in Sacramento. It's extremely hard doing this on our own without any kind of backup from Uber, Lyft, or Instacart. You know, George made light of his situation a lot, maybe because he had to. He joked about not having any money, for example. But this is where I heard him get kind of angry. They're not doing a single thing. Every single thing that happens is me. Every time that I spray my car with Lysol, that came out of my budget. Uber did not tell me to do that. They suggested and recommended that I cover my coughs. But every time that we're looking out for our community, that is something that we're doing out of the kindness of our hearts. That is just not something that Uber is, is doing for them. Personal protective equipment such as masks, gloves, and disinfectant for millions of drivers would cost a lot of money. But a company like Uber, for example, is valued at at least $60 billion. So we reached out to about 10 app companies seeking their comments, but we didn't hear back from them in time. We did, however, go on their websites to check on the new coronavirus updates, and many companies are slowly starting to distribute protective equipment. Though, from the drivers we talked to, it seemed like they'd been waiting for a long time, and some drivers had already gotten ill from transporting sick passengers. So we asked Chris what motivated people in his study to keep driving, but we also wanted to know what motivated them to stop driving, given all the economic repercussions that they face. You know, it's clear that those drivers who stopped working were doing it for essentially two different reasons. One is because there were so few jobs available that it didn't make it possible economically to do it. And second is because, of course, they're afraid of getting exposed to the virus. And I should mention that, you know, ride-hailing drivers in particular are particularly vulnerable because they're giving rides to a lot of people who are traveling, so coming in from different parts of the country and international flights and potential exposure to, you know, a, a wide variety of people. Uh, and then they're in an enclosed space, uh, their own automobile. We don't have really any data in the country that I know of that gives a breakdown of infection by occupation. We have some data from health workers, but other than that, uh, really not much. But I, I think we can assume that a lot of people doing this kind of ride-hailing work uh, are certainly are disproportionately exposed and potentially higher rates of, of infection. And what happened quite early on uh, with the pandemic is the platform companies did announce a COVID-19 related paid sick leave for their drivers. But the restrictions around that made it very hard for many drivers to qualify for that. They had to be certified as uh, COVID-19 positive, either themselves or they could do it in some cases for taking care of family members. But we know with the limits in testing that there are many, many people who have had COVID-19 or have it now, including with very serious symptoms, who are not able to get the tests to verify that. And in that case, they would not be eligible for the paid sick leave. His answer about the rate of COVID infections among drivers stood out to me because I talked to George earlier. And here's what he said when I asked him if he was worried about getting sick. I believe that I probably had COVID. I was really sick in March. So I had a passenger in the car who told me that her coworker had just caught coronavirus and that they had to send him home. So about three days later, I started getting a really bad cough and it turned into pretty violent fevers. I checked my temperature, it was 103.7, but it is by far the most sick I've ever been, which led me to uh, sleep in my car for two weeks in San Francisco. And I eventually went to the ER. They, they did not want to test me for COVID because they said, well, it's been two and a half weeks. There's no point of giving you a test. Now, I reached out to Uber. I reached out to Lyft to see if they were willing to help me get a test. They did not help me at all. The fact that I am at multiple grocery stores, I do about six runs every day, seven days a week. It is very scary. And I am super afraid of what's going to happen if myself or my daughter were to suffer serious health issues because of COVID. And the fact that very little seems to be getting done in regards to the platforms that make so much money from us. You were just listening to Chris Benner from the Department of Environmental Studies and Sociology at UC Santa Cruz and the Institute for Social Transformation. 
You are also listening to George Gonzalez, a driver for Instacart and Uber. We're talking about gig work and essential workers during COVID-19 on today's Making Contact. Make sure you keep up to date on our shows and get behind-the-scenes information on our website, radioproject.org. And now, back to our show. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're taking a look at gig workers and how they're doing during COVID-19. And from our guests in the first half, we mostly heard that they're not doing well. They feel like they've been working without much support under very dangerous circumstances, and they're vulnerable because they're not considered employees. They're considered contract workers, which kind of means they're on their own. Now, one of the interesting developments in the past few years in many states is the passage of laws designed to protect gig workers. So laws like AB5 in California and restrictions on who's considered a contract worker in places like New Jersey. These laws have passed because of organizing, organizing by drivers and other gig workers. We wanted to talk with one such organizer. My name is Angela Vogel. I am a driver and organizer with Philadelphia Drivers Union. And we are an all-volunteer, all-driver-led union, specifically drivers that drive for Uber and Lyft. And to end the show, we want to highlight this sort of new and visionary work and also talk about what still needs to change. Okay, so Angela, first off, let's talk about the gig economy pre-COVID-19 and how that's affected the situation many drivers are in now. Right, so it's interesting that there's so much more attention now because the uprise of gig work actually happened during our last major economic downturn, post-2008. Even under the Obama administration, there was not enforcement of employee classification. And there was a lot of encouragement, you know, for people to go out and find work despite the lack of good paying jobs. And many, many people turned to app-based work. What's happened with this pandemic is that it has essentially pulled the veil off of problems that were already existing, right? So it took a little sprained finger and turned it into a broken arm. Some states have done better than others in enforcing employment law. So you take New Jersey, for example, filed a lawsuit against Uber last year saying that Uber owed the employment taxes. So uh, New Jersey, as an example, was many steps ahead of creating the safety net that these drivers deserve. Just their employment tax bill would be $650 million. Had these things been addressed earlier, in years preceding when drivers were saying that these kind of safety nets and these kind of employer-employee relationships existed, drivers would not still be waiting six weeks after losing their jobs for any kind of economic relief. So you talked about, I think you called it employee designation. Can you talk about that more? What does that mean? What's a contract worker? Right. So in the United States, many of our rights are connected to whether or not we are classified as an employee. So, for example, our right to have the company that pays us pay into our unemployment insurance, to pay uh, stipends for health care, etc., No matter where you are, the determination between those two classifications depends on some kind of a test of how much control the employer has over your work. What happens with app-based work is that we don't have a manager standing there checking whether or not we came to work on time or not. And so many workers believe that just because they don't have to punch a clock and have a physical manager there, that that makes them an independent contractor. Apps have clouded the amount of control that many of these companies have over their workers. So in essence, the app itself creates control. So as soon as I log on, the app is telling me whether I did my job right based on the customer rating or whether or not I showed up on time and it's penalizing us or rewarding us for doing what the app wants us to do. So the argument has always been that Uber and Lyft drivers are actually employees and that those companies exert a lot of control over our work. Right, and that makes me wonder, how much does an average driver actually make in a year? Is that data out there? So like we are constantly telling our regulatory agencies and legislators here in Pennsylvania, 
you know, legislators often use the lack of access to data as a reason why they cannot go to Uber and Lyft and hold them accountable. We're constantly trying to remind them that data is here. I can open up my app right now and tell you exactly how much I made over what hours, and we can figure average expenses for the average mile and the average vehicle. The IRS does it every year. So the data is out there. There is no state or federal agency aggregating that data in a purposeful manner. So actually in most states, the legislation that legalized Uber and Lyft, what we would call unregulated services, in most states actually has provisions that specifically protect uh, transportation network companies, Uber and Lyft, from having to share that data here in Pennsylvania. They don't even have to respond to right to no requests for data. Why? Because Uber and Lyft wrote the legislation. Because, I mean, my question is, are people even making minimum wage? It's unclear. And in many, many places, they are not. Is there anything being done to force the companies to release any basic employment data on, for example, how much their workers are making or how many workers they have? There are things being done. What's being done, though, is being led by driver organizing and activist organizing in our communities. We are putting out all kinds of surveys um, to try to collect driver information. You know, we build our lists. Where it's not happening is at the government level, right? This pandemic unemployment assistance is the very first time that any states have made any effort to collect income data on Uber and Lyft drivers. And it's work that should have been happening for years. And and that's so interesting to me because you mentioned AB5 and these laws in New Jersey and Massachusetts. And it's becoming very clear that just because a law exists, it doesn't mean it's being used. That's exactly right. And, and the enforcement has always been the question. And I think that AB5 really proved that. But you will hear from drivers in any state that they have filed complaints with their departments of labor, that they have filed complaints with their attorney generals, that they have filed a complaint anywhere that someone can file a complaint to have employment classification enforced, and that there's a total lack of action. Angela, are there laws being developed on the national level that would protect drivers and gig workers? There is definitely a national coalition of driver-led organizations. I think at this time, given who our federal administration is, you know, there's a pretty strong feeling that without overturning a little bit of the legislature and probably a new president, that it would be very difficult to move these things forward. That's why the current effort is much more on state-by-state, so that hopefully we can win some enforcement in one of these states to sort of set an example as to what can be done federally when uh, the political landscape is a little more conducive to that. Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about organizing more specifically. And, you know, I was thinking about how it's sometimes difficult to organize new industries or traditionally ignored industries, for example, like domestic workers. What's been challenging about organizing gig workers? Um, The biggest thing that I'm always trying to impart on trade union organizers is that in many trades, the work that they do, that the workers do, they're very proud of it, and they build their identity around it, right? So if I'm talking to a steel worker or a nurse or a teacher, being a nurse or a teacher or a steel worker is part of their identity. The biggest challenge that we have with Uber and Lyft drivers, other than the high turnover is the lack of association with that identity, right? We do have quite a number of members where being a driver is really part of their identity, but because of this app-based gig-type work, a lot of our members really have something else that they build their identity around, right? They're a student. They're an artist. (laughs) They're a parent. So it forces us to, rather than just look at this sort of conventional trade union organizing model, we are really forced into a whole worker organizing model, meaning that I cannot just talk to them about what their experience is is driving. I also have to know, why do they drive? What is it in their life that they need this flexibility in hours, that driving was the thing that made sense? What is it that they are working towards that they're willing to go out and risk their life to make $10 on a trip if they're lucky? 
And I think that these are, if we go deeper in U.S. labor union history and look at, like you mentioned, domestic workers and farm workers, that we see that organizing around the whole worker and their whole life and everything that brings them to that point that they're at work was historically what made the U.S. labor movement strong, and we need to revive that. Okay, and since I asked you about what's been difficult about organizing, I'm also wondering what's been successful about organizing. Recently, we did get Uber here in Philly to concede to pay the vehicle insurance for our core and oldest members, which are the Uber Black drivers. They are required to purchase their insurance through Uber. And their commercial policies are about $125 a week or so. And Uber has been paying that for, I think, six weeks now and has promised us another two weeks. But what's been most positive and exciting about it to me has been getting to discover new ways of doing things. And I think that, like, when I'm talking about organizing the whole worker, it's very exciting to me that drivers have really, even though they haven't been getting the amount of notice that they deserve, they have really been leading the way in developing new ways of organizing because the old ways don't work for us. You were just listening to Angela Vogel, organizer with the Philadelphia Drivers Union, and George Gonzalez, a gig worker with Instacart and Uber. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about gig work and coronavirus? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. On an Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Aisa Chowdhury, Lisa Rudman, Catherine Steyer, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Estás escuchando KBOO Portland. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Do you believe in the importance of community radio? Of course I do. Then show your support today by donating online at kboo.fm and help us meet our fall fundraising goal of $80,000. We can only get there through the support of people like you. So donate at kboo.fm or mail us at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Give a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member today. Thanks. Welcome to Sprouts, Radio from the Grassroots, a weekly program that showcases radio production by independent community media. We bring local stories to a national audience, produced at a different location every week. I'm Colleen MacDonald from Got Science, a podcast by the Union of Concerned Scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today on Sprouts, part one of Voting During a Pandemic, COVID-19 and the 2020 Election. Voting rights expert, Dr. Michael Latner, explains how science can keep us safe when casting our votes during the COVID-19 pandemic. How do we vote during a pandemic? My own state, Massachusetts, held its primary before COVID-19 caused citywide shutdowns. So while I haven't seen the pandemic's effect on voting firsthand, I did see coverage of the Wisconsin and Georgia primaries, where long lines and the sudden closure of polling stations left many voters shaken and disgruntled with the process. And you can hardly blame them. The past months have shown our country is not prepared for voting during a pandemic at least not yet. So as November draws closer, there's a question that's become increasingly urgent. How can science help us avoid these failures in the presidential election? We tackle this question with our guest, Dr. Mike Latner, an associate professor in political science at California Polytechnic State University. And he's a former Kendall Voting Rights Fellow here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mike's an expert in the scientific measures of integrity and bias in our electoral systems. 
So he has a lot to say about what the pandemic has done to our voting system. So much so that we just couldn't fit it all into one episode. So we're doing a twofer, a two-part conversation about voting and COVID-19. This episode is part one, and we dig into what certain states have done right or wrong in their primaries and what we can learn from those examples. We also talk about mail-in voting and voter fraud, two topics swimming in a sea of rumors to learn what the research actually says. While we see in this episode that many things can go wrong and have gone wrong, part two will show us that a fair and safe election this November is still possible and that there are many things you and I can do now to make sure our states are ready. Mike, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. There's a collective angst right now about the election in November. We're in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic. We can't predict where outbreaks will be, how bad they'll be. And the pandemic voting collision on election day is something we, we really need to be prepared for. So, Mike, that's where you come in. How will voting be affected by COVID-19? Well, it's going to be affected in a number of ways. First of which is it's going to affect voter turnout. At the beginning of this year, based on surveys of voter intent and knowledge and excitability about the election, we are expecting 2020 to be a record turnout year. Um, That in itself presents a number of challenges for election officials at the state and local level just accommodating a, a massive surge in voter turnout. Now you add on top of that a pandemic that is going to make voting in person dangerous and we're basically forcing people to risk their health to exercise their franchise and uh, we don't want to do that so that means that states need to come up with alternative methods of voting such as vote by mail so that people can vote from home uh, which is not a problem for several states indeed um, five states uh, have some experience with universal vote by mail most notably washington and, and oregon but in many other states including a number of battleground states there's virtually no experience with vote by mail so you know we're talking about five percent or less uh, of the population typically votes by mail and those are often overseas and military voters who have to vote by mail if they're going to exercise their franchise and so we're talking about on the one hand a big challenge in terms of handling a surge of of voters who are interested in turning out in what's going to be a historic election and at the the same time a huge behavioral shift in that we need to to change the way that most Americans vote. And that's a massive challenge that is both an, an infrastructure challenge as well as a public education challenge. And then on, on top of that, if it were just a matter of, of you know moving everyone to vote by mail, that would be a, a significant challenge in itself. But for various reasons, whether it's access to residential mail or disability, um, tens of millions of Americans are going to still need to vote in person. And so we need to make sure that people can vote safely and securely in person without risking their health. And so that presents a whole new set of challenges for especially local election officials, but state election officials as well, uh, who are not in the, don't have the experience and the training to create medically safe environments um, out of polling places. And so there's a myriad of challenges that we're presented with this election year. So let me just quickly ask, I mean, we've already seen some of the chaos with the Wisconsin and the Georgia and, and other primary elections. So talk to me a little bit about what we saw there and what we've learned or can take away from those primaries to prepare us for November. Sure. So the the experience of holding a primary during a pandemic actually provides us with some really valuable lessons, mostly about what not to do. 16 states um, postponed their primaries as the pandemic began uh, spreading across the United States. And that was itself a a legal challenge for, for many states. A few states like uh, Wisconsin in particular, basically tried to postpone their election. The governor of, of Wisconsin attempted to do that. The The state Supreme Court claimed that he did not have the power to unilaterally do that. And so they ended up holding their election 
really voters weren't sure whether they were going to have an election the day before the primary actually began. And so what you really had was a reactionary response from state and local election officials. You had a number of emergency precinct closures. The number of precincts in the city of Milwaukee were consolidated from 85 to 5 uh, in the largest city in the state. The state was inundated with absentee ballot requests. Voters wanted to vote by mail. The surge in, in vote by mail requests was so high that local election officials were unable to process all of those requests and they didn't process them all on time. And so by the time the primary came around, you had thousands of absentee ballots that had never been delivered. Um, that resulted in a Supreme Court challenge that resulted in many voters basically being forced, um, since their the postmark date uh, was not extended for those mail ballots, they hadn't received their, ma- their ballots even though they requested them, and they were forced to decide whether or not to risk their health or to give up their vote. So what ended up happening? So what we saw on Election Day were very long lines in Wisconsin um, with the consolidated precincts. We had a lot of people who were in line for hours. Um, That increased the exposure to the, the COVID virus. And we have at least one study that came out the one comprehensive study from the National Economic Bureau of Research that showed that two to three weeks after the date of the primary, after election day, indeed there there was a positive association with uh, an increase in the rate of positive cases of COVID for counties that had more people per precinct showing up. And so we have some direct evidence that there there is a direct link between the level of voter congestion on election day at polling places and the risk of uh, the spread of the disease. Similarly, in Georgia, you had a reactionary state election apparatus that was closing precincts and really struggling to process the request for for mail ballots. And you you had similar results, fewer precincts open, longer lines, and, and really people unnecessarily risking their health. And so Uh, What we learned from those two cases is that we we want to be proactive. Um, We need to provide the the states with the infrastructure they need to process uh, mail ballots and to count those mail ballots when they come in. We need to support the the U.S. Postal Service that becomes essentially part of the chain of custody of mail ballots um, as we move people to vote by mail. There are also a couple of good examples. So the state of Nebraska for example, held their um, primary a couple weeks ago, and they prepared to um, move people to vote by mail. They sent every eligible voter an application for an absentee ballot. There was a big public education campaign to inform people of the way that voting is changing during the primary, and they had relatively few problems on election day. Crucially, they didn't close very many precincts, so they didn't, even though they had fewer people Um, voting in person. They had a massive surge of vote by mail, just like Wisconsin. But they also were able to process people for in-person voting with relatively few problems, in part because they they had the number of voting machines, the number of polling places that they needed to have open. They also provided every polling worker with personal protection equipment. And so they ensured that the polling places were um, compliant with CDC health and sanitation guidelines and they were able to pull off a primary with relatively few problems. You're listening to Sprouts, radio from the grassroots, a weekly program bringing you local radio productions of national interest. I'm Colleen MacDonald from Got Science, a podcast by the Union of Concerned Scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or at gotsciencepodcast.org. Today, we're talking about voting in the November election in the midst of a pandemic. So in Wisconsin and Georgia, they opened fewer polling places. That seems counterintuitive. Wouldn't you want more places open so that people are less crowded? Yeah, so that's mainly a a function of the, the practical constraints that local election officials are facing. So... On, on the one hand, if you're moving everyone to, to vote by mail, then um, you're not going to um, need the sort of uh, in-person infrastructure that you would normally have. And you don't want to 
uh, assign poll workers to polling places where very few people are showing up because you don't want to risk the health of your public workers either. On the other hand, it is, and this is the, the real reason comes in terms of the the constraints that we're seeing election officials facing. It's very hard to find poll workers. Poll workers are disproportionately um, elderly and retired people, and they are most at risk of infection, so we don't want to put them in polling places. A number of polling places around the country tend to be uh, senior centers and community buildings and places where high-risk populations might be close to other populations, so we want to avoid that. And that's resulted in making it harder for election officials to actually find adequate polling places and places that are compliant with CDC health guidelines. There's a lot of complexity there in terms of uh, working out where polling places can be safely put up and how long they can be put up. One of the additional requirements that we're looking for is for states to expand early voting. So we want early in-person voting at polling precincts. We're looking for you know, two weeks would be great um, if states could provide that. And the goal there is to flatten the curve on election day. So we don't want, if people need to vote in person, we don't want everyone to show up on election day. Um, we, we'd like to flatten out that curve so that people have a week or two weeks that, where they can vote in person early. Um, the problem, of course, is finding a place that you can set up either a private or commercial residence that can be set up for early voting. And, and those are hard to find, and it's making the, the job of election officials um, quite difficult. I, I would like to add, though, that there have been some innovations, um, certainly some policy innovations that, that we're encouraging in, in the UCS reports are partnerships with, with private and commercial enterprises. So uh, you may have heard uh, LeBron James um, this week is working with the NBA to encourage opening up um, stadiums as voting places. The Atlanta Hawks have already agreed to open up uh, their stadium on election day as a massive voting place. And, and that's the kind of innovation that we really need because we, if we're going to practice social distancing especially, it's really important that we're able to process voters efficiently. And in the places where that, that's hardest to do, and we know this from, from past research, and this is in the the new UCS, UCLA um, Voting Rights Lab report, is that the wait times and the, the longer that people wait in line are not distributed equally across the population. Uh, specifically, urban voters in densely populated districts, voters of color, voters with disabilities, they're more likely to experience problems at a polling place. They're more likely to experience longer wait times. And in many cases, these are the same populations that are at higher risk for um, COVID infection and uh, the death rates are higher among these same populations. And so if we don't address these inequities in voter congestion, uh, what we can expect is an amplification of the existing uh, racial disparities and other disparities that we already see in COVID death rates. And you're talking about the report protecting public health in the 2020 election. Is that right? That's right. Right. So this is a new report that just came out that I was reading this morning before um, before our conversation, and I highly recommend it. It's got some really great resources in it as well for people to look at where your state is, and you can also find you know things that you can do. I think it's interesting. You know, maybe we need to encourage young and healthy people to volunteer at polling places. Oh, absolutely. And uh, in fact, the uh, Science Rising site has a, a tool, um, TurboVote. Has... I just did TurboVote this okay. morning when I was looking at all the materials. I just went in there and I ordered up my ballot. And I mean, I love going to the to the polls on Election Day because I just think it's exciting to go there and do that. But not this year. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I live in California, so I am a permanent absentee voter. But my habit, um, and this is partially because I just you know like the social experience, is to, to fill out my ballot at home. And then I go to the polling place in the morning and I drop it off. I drop off my whole family's ballots. And it's an important part of the election experience, you know. But just like so much of our, our social lives has changed over the last few months, um, we, we have to do things differently this year because we, we should not be risking people's health to, to exercise the franchise. And so we need to make these changes and these adjustments. And, and we know what to do. We know the cause of uh, long lines and voter congestion. 
And so what we need to do is implement the, the tools that we can use to reduce voter congestion and still provide a, you know, a robust voting experience. Why is mail-in voting so controversial? I feel like we have science that supports that mail-in ballots, that they work. Why are they so controversial? Yeah, the, the question over the safety of, of vote by mail is something that has been, um, frankly, made a controversy because there are certain political figures that have been casting evidence-free claims about the, the dangers of vote by mail, specifically with regard to voter fraud. UCS and the UCLA Voting Rights Project, along with the University of New Mexico School of Social Policy, collaborated on a report earlier this summer. And we actually look at all of the, the data available from the, the Heritage Foundation, uh, which is itself a, a conservative think tank. So we're using the, the data that you know doesn't come from uh, progressive sources or anything like that. And you know we demonstrate pretty clearly that for the states that have moved to vote by mail, there's no evidence of significant increase in voter fraud uh, or election fraud more, more broadly. And um, when we look across states that have traditionally used a lot of, of vote by mail, what we find is that the danger, if anything, is that the rejection rates are higher. Um, and by rejection rate, I mean the, the ballots that don't get counted. And part of that is a function of the signature requirement. So when you vote by mail, typically you have your signature that's recorded on your on the voter registration list and the signature that you you sign on your your mail ballot that you return the envelope is matched against that signature and if those signatures don't match then that ballot's not counted and so what we actually see is that states that use a lot of vote by mail have higher ballot rejection rates if anything else i would also add that vote by mail is a a way of providing a paper ballot um, every ballot you know, has a, a physical reality to it that some types of voting don't have. And so in that sense, um, mail ballots actually add an additional layer of, of security, particularly with regard to, to hacking and auditing. There is a verifiable ballot, ballot that can be checked. So how do you commit fraud with vote by mail? Well, there are a couple of ways. Folks that are, are claiming that vote by mail is dangerous typically make the case that, that voters themselves are going to either be sent ballots uh, when they shouldn't. That is, people that are not eligible to vote are going to be sent ballots and then those votes will be counted when they shouldn't. Or that there's going to be some kind of ballot stuffing where political campaigns uh, might collect ballots that aren't filled out by voters and fill them out themselves. And indeed, we do have evidence that, that this has occurred. I mean, voter fraud is a, a real thing. Most recently, there was a, a local election in New Jersey where there were about 3,000 or so votes that were the, the irregularity in the, the patterns of the votes being turned in revealed that there was a local election official um, engaged in, in election fraud. And then in 2018, probably the most famous recent example was the, the North Carolina 9th Congressional District race actually had to be invalidated and rerun because the Republican candidate in that race was using campaign officials that were collecting ballots and then either throwing them out if they were Democratic ballots or filling out blank ballots. And so in both those cases, I think the, the important lesson to learn is that in neither of those cases were voters themselves actually involved in, in fraud. So it wasn't illegal voters that were casting illegal ballots. It, were, it was political campaigns and it was election officials that were actually engaged in fraud. And, and this is what we find is much more common across all types of election fraud. So individuals aren't doing this? Typically, it's election administrators that are engaged in fraud uh, or political campaigns. It's rarely, uh, if ever, voters. Most of the convictions for voter fraud, voter impersonation fraud, are largely the result of error. People that are voting in two states and they don't know that they're not eligible, or people voting when they're on parole and they're not eligible to vote, things like that. So the bottom line is that even in the cases of New Jersey and North Carolina, it's important to note that these cases were discovered with relatively low numbers of ballots being cast inappropriately. And it's because 
we can detect fraud. Um, we know forensic election science is, is pretty good at detecting irregular patterns of ballot returns. And so when these things do happen, we tend to catch them. And the number of voter and, and election fraud cases overall and the number of ballots that have been cast inappropriately are, uh, we're really talking about thousands of ballots out of millions and millions of ballots cast. And so there's there's virtually no evidence that any kind of election fraud actually affects the turnout uh, or affects the outcome of elections, except in those two cases that we have. Mike, thanks for joining me, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode. Definitely want to hear your thoughts on what might happen if people don't mail in their ballots and what we can all do to help protect our democracy. We'll be dropping that episode in one week, but don't go away just yet. It's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science History, we're going back to July 25th, 1972, when an Associated Press story ran in the Washington Star and was on the front page of the New York Times the very next day, under the headline, Syphilis Victims in U.S. Study Went Untreated for 40 Years. This was the first time the mainstream media would address the now infamous Tuskegee study. The attention and outrage from the articles, and those that followed, led to congressional hearings and an official review of the study, which was ultimately shut down that year. Most people know the broad outlines of the Tuskegee study. Starting in 1932, medical workers with the U.S. Public Health Service tracked 600 black men in rural Alabama, 399 with syphilis and 201 without. However, the men were not told what the study was for. In fact, those diagnosed with syphilis weren't even told their diagnosis. Instead, participants were simply told that they had, quote, bad blood. Yet despite the fact that penicillin was discovered to be a cure for syphilis 10 years into the study and became widely available five years later, the life-saving drug was not offered to any of the participants all so the doctors could track how the untreated disease made its way through their bodies. Throughout the course of the study, several dissenters tried to speak out against the ethical issues inherent to the work. Medical practitioners from both within and outside the U.S. Public Health Service raised concern with the study authors and leaders within the PHS. But it wasn't until a whistleblower, Peter Buxton, went to the press that real change happened. By then, fewer than 75 of the men who received no treatment were still alive. And the victims extended to the wives and children of the untreated men, many of whom contracted syphilis from their husbands or were born with congenital syphilis. And that's not where the damage ends. In fact, we're seeing some of it playing out with COVID-19. Thanks to what's known as the Tuskegee effect, Black people in the U.S. often mistrust the medical system and are less likely to see a doctor over a health issue than members of other minority groups, which could be playing a part in the unequal health outcomes they're seeing in this pandemic. And while the medical and science establishment has worked to correct some of the ethical issues behind the study, most notably by requiring informed consent for any participants in clinical trials and other studies involving human participants, the racism underlying the study has not been eradicated. In fact, the legacy of racism and white supremacy continues to distort science today, such as the persistence of racist theories of intelligence and the significant gaps in medical knowledge and healthcare outcomes for communities of color, driven in large part by decades of research focused primarily on white men. That's it for Sprouts. You've been listening to part one of Voting During a Pandemic, COVID-19 and the 2020 election. If you like what you heard, you can find the Got Science podcast on your favorite podcast app or at gotsciencepodcast.org. Our program's executive producer was Rich Hayes, with editing by Omari Spears and Brian Middleton, writing and research by Jiayu Liang and Pamela Worth. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love, the Sprouts theme music is Torpedoes on Tuesday by Poison Control Center. Sprouts is a weekly program produced in collaboration with community radio stations and independent producers across the country. The program is coordinated and distributed by Pacifica Radio. 
thanks to Brian David at Satellite Operations. If you or someone at your station has a radio production that you wish to showcase nationally on Sprouts, contact our air traffic controller, Ursula Rudenberg, at U-R-S-U-L-A at Pacifica.org. That's U-R-S-U-L-A at Pacifica.org. I'm Colleen McDonald from the Got Science Podcast in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening and see you next week on Sprouts. Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Burns.